For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. to speak to you today, and what I wanted to speak to you today about is our second grave precept, the precept of not stealing, or as maybe a more accessible um, rephrasing, not taking what is not given. You know, we have our, our 10 well, we have, we have 16 bodhisattva precepts that we follow, but, but we have these 10 grave precepts, and I'll, I'll just read them to you. They're, a, a disciple of Buddha does not kill. A disciple of Buddha does not take what is not given. A disciple of Buddha does not misuse sexuality. A disciple of Buddha does not lie. A disciple of Buddha does not intoxicate mind or body of self or others. A disciple of Buddha does not speak of the faults of others. A disciple of Buddha does not praise self at the expense of others. A disciple of Buddha is not possessive of anything, especially the Dharma. A disciple of Buddha does not harbor ill will. And a disciple of Buddha does not disparage the the three treasures of, of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And that is really a tall order to take them all at once. So I think it it can really help to take them one at a time. Um, We have, you know, these 10 grave precepts and many other sects of Buddhism have five precepts. And and this comes in as one of the, one of the top five in the uh, top 10 precepts. Um, But really, I think every religious tradition or faith tradition has injunctions against stealing. And we can see, I think within our tradition, I'll just, I'll just speak within our Bodhisattva, Zen, Mahayana tradition, we can see these as prohibitions against actions. We can see them as aspirations for our behavior. And these, this is a conventional way of understanding the precepts. But ultimately, we can see these precepts as dimensions of the mind of Buddha, that when we are practicing in accordance with Buddha and with our Buddha nature, we, we don't do these things, that, that they are so like all things that exist in the absolute or the ultimate sense we can't translate them perfectly into our four-dimensional world. So um, the point isn't to observe the precepts or practice them perfectly. You you can't do it in a conventional sense, um, although you can try. And, And the point is to practice them so that we can begin to more fully recognize our interdependence with others and with all forms of life and with everything in the world. That that's, that's really what, what the precepts help us realize when we, when we practice them. We, we practice, you know, to live in harmony with what Suzuki Roshi called things as it is, you know, everything, that, all the individual things as part of one, one big thing. So, think that we can all recognize, you know, that our lives really revolve around giving and taking or giving and receiving, you know, in the, when we are able to have longer, um, you know, practice periods or sashins, we, we have a chant that we do at meals and everybody's familiar with the, the line, you know, we realize the emptiness of the three wheels, giver, receiver, and gift. And, um, I think that this line can help us to think about part of the, maybe the meaning of this precept, that there's, there's giving and there's receiving and there's a gift. And what is our relationship to that? If you think back to when you were a little child, maybe even before you can remember anything, um, everything 
was either given to you or not given to you, but you didn't really have control over much. You know, there, there wasn't part of, you know, you, you don't have control over what, what you receive as a child. And, you know, one of the first manifestations of a child's feelings of independence is to say, no, you know, I, I, or, or yes, I want that, you know, give, give me that. And that's, that's kind of how this, how this first arises for us. Um, children don't really understand waiting and patience. They don't really understand permission. They don't really un- understand reciprocation. Although children do actually understand generosity when they're motivated. But, but children are very much motivated by, you know, me and, and what I need and what I need right now. And, um, and so, so this is where we begin in our, in our awareness, you know, and as we grow, we develop the capacity for relationships with others based on mutuality. You know, maybe we can, we begin to recognize the other as an I or as a subject. Um, and, and, and maybe you learn the golden rule along, along the way, you know, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. But we still, even within that framework, we, we can very much see the world in, 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 within the framework of, you know, what me and what I want and even, even doing unto others, you know, I'll do this because I want them to do that to me. Um, we can, we can, you know, very much become angry when we don't get what we want or when we get what we don't want and we can see others as a means to getting what we want. It's and, and in a, in a quid pro quo kind of way. Um, a lot of, what I remember learning about, you know, kind of economics in elementary school was based on this, that there are consumers and producers and, you know, we, we give this for that. Um, and, and we can continue this mindset well into adulthood, even though we may have an awareness on another level that, um, that others have their own subjectivity, that others have their own needs. And that, and that when, someone doesn't give us what they want it's not necessarily about us you know it's not about withholding or you know rewarding it's it's we 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 come to develop a more nuanced way of at least interacting with the people that we know i think with with you know the whole thing goes out the window with things like you know when we're in our car and and the other person is doing something and, and we see it all about us, you know, that he's cutting me off or, you know, he's, he's letting me go or he's, you know, all kinds of, all, I've just been through all kinds of uh, automobile things recently. <laughs> <laughs> so um, maybe I'm, I'm viewing the world through a, through a driver kind of lens, but, um, but, but, but so anyway, as we, as we start to develop this way of thinking of, um, you know, me and you and our relationship, stealing can start to become a moral issue, you know, that, that taking things is, or stealing is bad, um, generosity or not stealing is good. And this it comes to be how we start to think about this, this precept. Um, now, it's true that I think most of us in our daily lives do not think about ourselves as stealing things. We don't think of ourselves as thieves. We, um, so it's hard to see, you know, we, I think we can sort of, and when you're going through the list of precepts, this one, it's easy to sort of check off and go, okay, didn't steal anything. I'm all good. Um, but as we start to practice, I think maybe it's maybe it's easier to, to think about this, this precept in terms of not taking what is not given. Because there are a lot of things in life that it's hard to see exactly whether they're given or not. And um, and in our habitual life, we we might take some things without really realizing that they're not given. Um, so you know, as we start to practice meticulously with not taking what is not given, we might do things like, you know, not taking home office supplies, 
or you know, not taking more office supplies than they really need at our desk. Um, we might become meticulous about giving back extra change. If um, you know, at the grocery store they, they hand you too much change, you might be, oh no, that's too much. Um, I once did this with a penny and I really actually did not feel good about the result because I, I wound up looking petty. Um, <laughs> but we can also, you know, we can also do things like um, practicing with maybe not, you know, angling into that parking space while the, the person over there is waiting with their blinker on. Or um, my favorite one, because it, it really, this stirs up everything inside of me. When they call your boarding group at the airport, not angling so that I am first in line. I, it, it makes me nuts to not do it, but, but it is, you know, it is a, is a possibility of, of practicing with, you know, not taking what is not giving, given. And as we start to practice in, the, in this way with, with noticing what is given and what is not given, we can, um, you know, we can start to feel very virtuous about our behavior. So, so there we are again, like checking off, oh, even more subtly not practicing or, or practicing not stealing. And, you know, this isn't such a bad thing. This is, this is not a bad thing. It, it actually has many benefits um, for ourselves and for others. Others might begin to trust us more because they have an experience where they can, they, they've, observed how meticulously honestly we are and they can recognize that you know hey I can, I can tell this person something I can let down my guard and not be taken advantage of um, others may come to emulate our example which can only be good for for everyone um, and you know we over time in practicing this way may start to notice that we feel a greater sense of peace of mind that, um, you know, I think that possibly everyone is like me, where we're, we're out in the world and we're kind of, a, we're a little bit carrying ourselves forward and experiencing the myriad things, which Dogen has taught us is, is delusion. And then we come and we sit on our cushion and um, maybe little memories of some unskillful behavior bubble up and um and maybe some of these unskillful behaviors had to do with realizing as we sit down that oh yeah i i, I did that i took something and it wasn't really wholeheartedly given and so as we as we become more meticulous with our with our you know four-dimensional behaviors we start to notice that we feel a greater peace of mind because those those thoughts aren't aren't coming to the forefront as frequently. And I have to say that I think that this peace of mind is part of the point of practicing this precept. Part of it. It is a way of um, <coughs> it helps us actually to settle with even more practice. It helps our practice to deepen when we are feeling this this peace of mind. That, that's beginning to pervade our lives. Um, and so I have a couple of a couple of examples of just ways that we might pretty common ways of, of practicing with this um, or, or things that we might observe maybe is a better way of saying it as we start to practice with the precept of not taking what is not given. We may recognize that, um, like with my example of, you know, the boarding gate at boarding group at the airport, um, we can recognize a, a state of mind within within me at least, where I just kind of habitually assume maybe that someone else is going to take something if I don't take it, and so you know I I, I do it preemptively or you know I, I watch my back or 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 something and. and that's an example of something to observe with practicing this precept. Um, I had another one come up recently, which is part of what got me started thinking more deeply again about this precept, which was I 
what happened to me was I accidentally sent $2,000 to a complete stranger over PayPal. And it took a long time to get it back. PayPal would not do anything to help me. There was, there was really very little I could do. I, I had to try to work with the person that I gave it to. And, um, and it took a month to, to actually get the, the $2,000 back. And I'll, I'll spare you the details, but um, while I was anguishing over, over this and, you know, what have I done? What, what am I going to do? I'm trying to find some kind of peace of mind. I posted something on, on Facebook saying, you know, if someone sent you to, if some random person sent you $2,000, would you keep it or would you return it? And I was really, really heartened to find that everyone who responded to me not only would return it, but had an example of a time when they returned it. And I thought, how wonderful. This, you know, that may not be the whole world, but all my friends, at least, who are willing to post something, would give it back. I mean, that's, that's, that's a valuable thing to know about your friends. Um, so, so but, but this was another example of, of, of practicing with this precept, because I had to sort of wait and see. You know, is this person going to keep something that was really not, it was given to them, but, but not... Not, you know, it was lost and, and they know who it belongs to and who's looking for it, you know, or will they give it back? And they did give it back. Um, but it was a long time of thinking about while I was waiting for it, thinking about the ways in which maybe I had slipped, you know, in my in my practice of this. So so going back to observing, you know, what do I do with with change or um, some of the things that we that we habitually do with this precept and, and kind of gave me an opportunity to rededicate myself a little bit more to the to the conventional ways of practicing with this precept. So you may have other you know examples of of things like this in your life. But I think the last example was one that came from my grandmother. My grandmother um, at the around the end of the time that she was able to live independently, she was out one day and someone broke into her house and stole all her silverware. And she was upset, but she also, she kind of recovered from it pretty quickly. She was like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe they needed it. Maybe they really needed it. But, but, but she was really torn by this question of, you know, why would anybody even want this? It has my monogram on it. So, so for her, it was, it, it was about a, an entirely different thing. And the, 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 the whole, perp, the whole point of the silverware had, had a different meaning to her. And she was able to, I think, move pretty quickly to a place of, you know, okay, once we explained to her why someone would want someone else's silverware, even if it had their monogram, she, she was able to get to sort of like, okay, well, maybe, maybe somebody really needed that. And, and I really, I don't anymore. Um, so I don't know. I'm getting a little, a little far flung, but the second precept is, is not saying that we shouldn't have preferences and that, that we shouldn't take things, that we, we live in a world where there are, we, you know, we need things, and, and we have limited resources. But what it is saying is that sometimes things are given, and sometimes they're not given. And when we, you know, kind of live in the midst of practicing and recognizing our interdependence with others, we begin to see the importance of mutuality and consent. So recognizing that there's, there really is a relationship here with another person or, or another being, and that we begin to recognize the importance of honoring that. If, if you have ever maybe tried to hug someone who didn't want to be hugged, if you can think about that experience, you know, think about how did it feel? I think, I think 
when we when we recognize that you know even though the other person is kind of going through the motions they're not really they didn't really want to be hugged and they're not really hugging us it, it doesn't feel so good and i think that thinking about an experience like that makes it a little easier to start to see what i think is at the heart of this precept that you know when we are really after after practicing with observing our actions and the skillful results or the unskillful results after when we're open and honest with ourselves in this way we can start to see that we actually can never take something that is not given because what we receive or or wind up with is not really what we thought we were taking we and and that is that's i think the more subtle piece of this practice um when we first as i as i was saying you know when we first start to practice with this precept we may actually take things habitually that aren't given um rabbi anderson says in in his book on the precepts he says when we are deluded stealing cannot be stopped when we awaken we cannot be forced to steal and i think that this is this is about that feeling and that recognition that when we when we take things that aren't given we we aren't actually receiving what we wanted we we actually do want that mutual consent it doesn't it doesn't feel good to 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 do something otherwise and even though i know we have all kinds of examples in our maybe especially our political world and and in and in you know the world at large that kind of grasping and taking does not satisfy our deeper desires and needs we you know we know from the four noble truths that our suffering comes from our grasping and our clinging to our desires that that you know the world is out of whack and we we try to grasp to onto things or cling to things and this creates our suffering and the way to end that suffering is through our practice so you know a question that i think that we can practice with is although it is not it's not wrong to have desires and to want objects or things we we need we need things in this world in order in order to live is there a way that we can live in the world without grasping and how do we know when we are merely taking something or receiving something and when we're grasping for it in a way that brings that's actually a little bit more violent it brings something about um and i think the answer really does begin with our wholehearted practice you know that when we are faced with our desire for an object or a person or an experience how can we hold this lightly we hold on to this lightly you know we don't push it away we don't grasp onto it any more tightly than the other person is letting go of their grasp on it this is the heart of our practice when we um you know are are and and we we may sit with very intense feelings of hunger or longing that are caused by these desires for something that we're having but you know we don't we don't push them away you don't have to negate them or impose judgment on yourself for having that kind of feeling of wanting something but just sit closely sit closely with that feeling and sit with compassion for yourself and as a as a suffering being in the midst of this um you know it's it's not wrong to want things it's it's part of being alive on this earth that will never come to an end but when we can sit very closely with our desires without grasping we start to develop compassionate relationships with ourselves and with the rest of the world we start to really understand and honor the meaning of our of of the word interdependence and we then make real you know or realize the emptiness of the three wheels the giver receiver and gift that there's there's nothing nothing 
in a more ultimate way. What, what we really want is, is actually what's given. And, and that may involve, that may involve negotiation, you know, or, or permission or, or some sort of more mutual action. And I think it's this, that's, that's really, that the, this is what we're, we're aiming for when we start to practice with, you know, okay, don't, you know, take, don't take the extra change or from, from the, you know, the penny bin at the, at the, checkout counter or, or, or other kinds of things. So, so those are my thoughts about not taking what's not given. I'm hoping maybe we can have a conversation or something. Um, or, or if people have questions about other things, I know we, we have maybe some newer people here as well as online. Um, this is a time when we can talk about whatever. So thank you for the samples. For giving me your attention. <laughs> and people in the Zoom mention, uh, just know that I can see you. I know you can't see me. The camera's on. But if you raise your hand, I will see you and I'll call on you so we can all hear your question. Right. I'll break the silence. Um, Thank you. I'll try not to break it for very long. Can't um, hear you. So I thank you for your talk. I think it's uh, an excellent topic that we need to revisit often. Um, when I first started studying Buddhism, it was the meditation part that really grabbed my attention. And I have to admit it was from uh, a lot of grasping ideas. I wanted to develop one-pointedness of mind. And, you know, I had these sort of fantasies about how I was going to improve myself to become like this super Zen person. This is a long time ago. And so when I first picked up the Diamond Sutra and I read the third chapter about a bodhisattva does not conceive of a self or a, or a being or a lifespan or, and, and in the service of, of these other beings, I thought, well, this isn't going to help me. So I said, I, I'm like, what? This is like the most important sutra in, in Zen. What the hell is this talking about? So over the course of years, I did come to understand what he was talking about. And I think you made this point in your talk several times, and maybe you could talk a little bit more about it. The idea that um, in some traditions, they talk about the three levels of understanding the precepts. And the, the basic is, I'm going to try and help you so that I can be better and, you know, you can be better off. And then there's the second level of, you know, sort of vaguely understanding that there's a spiritual component of this. And then the deepest understanding, or, or maybe, I don't even know if there's a word to describe it, you know, when you get to the transcendent level, which means transcending ego, transcending the concept even of ego, you, I realized I got full circle back to the Diamond Sutra that I was talking about, which is when you don't even think, oh, here's me, and here's Nancy, and here's Dylan, and here's, when you just think of, there's a situation, how can I reduce suffering in this situation, and if it requires something of me, I don't even, I just do it. And, uh, for several years now, I've been taking care of my 90-year-old mother, who is very incapacitated. And it's been a real object lesson in uh, developing that, um, not even thinking, just, you know, there's a need, let's take care of it. You know, not, not even thinking of, you know, me doing it, or it's just, you know, I'm a part of a, of a larger whole. <clears throat> And if I function well, the larger whole functions well. So, um, anyway, that, those are some thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I, I think that that is really important. And it's hard to, it's, it's, it's a state that I think, I think um, everyone who lives in the conventional world kind of goes in and out of, right? You know, we, we can't, we can't take care of our everything we need every day if we if we have completely let go of that need because because you know 
we might not live. We might we, we might not survive to help others. But but I think that that that's the ultimate, you know. And and I think like like everything with the ultimate, we we can make it real in moments or in, in it has to translate into the dimensions of our lives. And so we can we can make it real in moments, but only imperfectly. But, but that is hugely important. And um, it sounds like it sounds like you know living this way with your mother has really become an opportunity to practice this. And I think I think that the that the reverse can also be true. I never was a parent. Although now I'm a, a step parent to adults, um, but uh, but I think that that's what you know a lot of parents describe to me with young children is that you you stop thinking it, it, it's so important to take care of, of the child that you, you stop thinking of yourself the same way, and and I think that that's a wonderful wonderful opportunity that many people have just in their daily lives to practice. Yeah. One. Quick follow-up. In the Tibetan tradition, one thing I love about it is at the end of every meditation session or really anything they do, they dedicate the merit. And so it's a real great way of reminding ourselves that we're not just doing this for ourselves. We're doing this for the benefit of all beings. Um, and I, I, I love that. So. And, and we'll be doing that later on, too. And certainly other yeah. things, yes. Yeah. It's not specific just to the Tibetan we aspire, we start to orient ourselves maybe to this aspiration to benefit all beings. And that is a great thing too, because just having that visual way of thinking, I think starts to temper some of our, you know, tendency to, to grasp at things. But it is, it is for sure always a practice. You know, I, I maybe also thought at one point that I could, you know, get there and get, you know, this one pointedness of mind and then all, my, all the other problems would just fall away. And um, that hasn't happened for me. <laughs> but um, I think that, you know, as we live our lives, we, we develop a different relationship to all the other problems. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Hi. Um, I really appreciate your talk uh, because, you know, like you described, I, for the precepts, this isn't one, honestly, I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Like, it maybe isn't as, like, kind of glamorous or, you know, a, a interesting as some of the other ones. And like you said, maybe I've in the past just sort of checked it off as, like, you know, I'm not, like, shoplifting every day. So, uh, <laughs> mostly, no. Um but, you know, diving into it is really interesting. And I appreciate how you brought in, like, kind of the themes of, like, mutuality, consent. And I thought, too, and I don't know if you mentioned this, but, like, transparency in a way, too. Because I thought in the past, when I've maybe taken something that wasn't given forthrightly, I, there's, like, an uh, idea that I deserve this thing, you know? Um, but... <laughs> still like there's a sneakiness to it you know like which i think is telling uh that there's like a lack of willingness to be transparent about that deserving that feeling of being you know of deserving something and i think yeah if you kind of lean into transparency mutuality and discussion dialogue because that's how you get consent obviously um that is like a counter to that kind of tendency toward sneakiness when you're looking for something that's not uh, yours or that you kind of, even in the realm of you maybe shouldn't be doing it, you know? <laughs> uh, so I just think like noticing all of that uh, feels really helpful to me. And again, like just, yeah, I appreciate thinking about consent and mutuality as a just every day every moment sort of um, practice because we're so we're just with people all the time. So 
how do you, uh, yeah, how do you, you know, it just feels like a great thing to be practicing all the time. Thank you so much for bringing that up, Bo. Um, I hadn't thought about it as transparency, but I, I think that you're, you're, you're pointing to something that I think is really important, which is the, the sneaky ways that we can react when someone, when the root problem might be that someone has taken something from us that we haven't given, like, like when, our, um, when we've been given so much work that it's going to take us like mm. three extra hours. And so then we start to, I don't know, cheat on something. I, I can't think of a good, you know, specific example, but, but we say, well, you know, they did that to me, so I'm going to do this to them. And um, when a different way maybe to respond to that situation would be to like you're saying, be transparent and tell the person, you know, you gave me actually too much to do, or you did this, and I didn't, I didn't really consent to that. Mm -hmm. And can we work something out here? Mm -hmm. You know, they, that's a really good example, because it's, we don't always right away see when someone has imposed something on us that, that we didn't consent to. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and I think that's another dimension of, of this precept is we, we don't, we don't steal from ourselves or allow, you know, we, we try to not allow others to steal from us as well by, by speaking up, by saying, Hey, you're, you're kind of violating, you know, what I thought the terms of, of our engagement were. There, I, I have a number of good books about the precepts. So, and, of course, my favorite is Being Upright by Rev Anderson, which is a classic. But there's also another a wonderful one by Diane Eschen, not Eschen, Rosetta, called Waking Up to What You Do. And the, mm. the, the name of it is so great because I think that's what the precepts are about, is waking up to what we do. Not necessarily in the way of, like, Stop that, you know, but like, like just see, see what it is that we're doing. And she talks about this, that, 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 that feeling of um, resentment that, that leads us to start taking things that aren't given. Mm -hmm. It, you know, it, we, we maybe can compound someone else's taking by, by taking back. Mm -hmm. Bless. Thank you for that. Um, really illuminating talk. I got a lot out of it. And, um, you know, some of the first steps can be a bit <laughs> You made it. So, you really brought it to life and you added so much dimension to it. And, and I am definitely that guy at the airport. I, I am. I'm a pro sneaking in and pretending I'm on my phone. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm in front. What a surprise. <laughs> you know, but, but as you know, you were talking, I thought, well, yeah, there's a, there, there is a, a feeling associated with that because it's like there's shame, you know, and you feel like, oh my God, I'm that guy. You know, <laughs> you know like self-loathing. Like, whenever I do stuff like that, um, yeah, there's a cost. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about the cost of that, but you're right. That's exactly the feeling. It's that, it's that oh, I can't believe yeah. I'm doing this, but I yeah. am doing it. <laughs> I really am a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Zen practitioner. What am I doing here? Yeah. Um, but I want my, my suitcase in that over here. <laughs> Um, I, I love the uh, ideas about um, interdependency that we touched on too, because I think that is really practice itself. So yeah, that gave me a lot to think about. Especially knowing another fellow. Um, airport person, but, but, but I, I appreciate all your comments. Um, 
I think that um, that within any spiritual spiritual tradition, any any religious tradition, I think that's the point of all the things that we get told to do or not do is is really to help us recognize the wholeness, um, you know, and, and the healing of becoming whole and moving beyond our me, 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 me. But, um, but I know, for me at least, in the religion that I grew up with, that was just hard to see. And maybe it was because I was in, because I was a child, you know, at the time. And I, and I was, you know, moving through those developmental stages of how we begin to recognize our relationship to others. That I, I didn't see it and then found Buddhism and, you know, Buddhism enriched my, my spiritual life. But I think it's I think it's something that's available within all religious traditions if we if we can see it and appreciate it. Is anything online then? I don't know. Stan's here. Okay. Um brought a lot of things and I am very, I guess I should use the word of a lot of taking. And um, one of the things that, you know, we live in a capitalist society. We live in a, a very, very unequal society. And I would go so far as to say that we live in a kleptocracy. That fact is, or at least I regard it as a fact, maybe other people don't, but uh, it's not as bad as some other kleptocracies, but we definitely, if you look at the way um, corporations take what they want and don't consider the suffering that is caused by what they do, you've got to call it, because corporations are actually running things more than politics right now. Um, um, it puts all of us in a bad spot. It really puts us all in a bad spot. Because um, what do you do when you feel, for example, that Amazon is robbing you? And then you go into Whole Foods and you know Amazon owns Whole Foods. And extremely high prices, et cetera, et cetera. And it's very, very unfair. So I have an extreme problem dealing with those feelings. That's, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to use everybody as a confessor. But I, but this is something. This political atmosphere that we live in absolutely guns me, and I don't know how to fight that. That's your dumbass, so Nancy. Yeah, I I don't either. I thank you for bringing a, a deeper dimension to this because I I agree with you that. Um, we are being taken from. The, the world is being, I don't think raped is, is too strong of a word. Um, and I don't know how to respond. And I think I think that maybe sometimes I, I do what maybe we all can do sometimes. Think about, well, okay, here's my behavior. Here's what I can do. But but you're completely right that, that there is this whole other dimension of taking. And... Um, by people, you know, who have organized themselves in such a way that they maybe don't have to see anymore what they're, what they're doing. Um, and, and maybe, you know, are, are, are an extreme example of, I think, what, um, you know, what Rev was talking about in that sentence. I'll, I'll just read it again. You know, when we are deluded, stealing cannot be stopped. When we awaken, we cannot be forced to steal. That's, that's the example of delusion of the rampant, I think, viewing of our planet 
as something that we can just continually take from and that there will be no consequences. And, and it's awful because we are seeing the consequences. And I, I don't know what to do about it either. I just want to say one more thing. Yeah, sure. I was at a rally at the Jackson and not sure, but anyway, it was down in, in Chicago's financial zone. The street that comes in there, I don't know, remember the name of it. But we were down there yelling, we are the 99%, you know. And up in the windows of the um, of, of the places that we were challenging, they put a big sign saying, we are the 1%. And it made me understand something. Um, and... <coughs> You know, I'm just bringing up questions because I don't know what to do about any of this. But this is something that I think is true. If a person sees that you have, have money, and that person is smart enough to get that money away from you, they honestly believe that it belongs to them because they are more worthy because they are smarter. And uh, you know, I'm not sure this is true, and I don't think it's true of everyone, but I think it's true of people who spend their time figuring out how to be wealthy. They figure out how they can get the money. Um, but it's, like I said, Nancy, this is a real problem to me. It is a real problem. And I don't know if that's true, what I'm saying, that, you know, a person who takes money from somebody else thinks it's because I'm smarter. They don't think it's because, well, I spend my whole time thinking about this and they're raising a family and they're, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I think that that is where our practice with other people comes in. And it's, it's not a good, it's not a, it's, it's not a good solution. It's not a quick solution. And it's, but it's, um, you're talking to think about people who have maybe turned their backs on their humanity. And, um, I, and, and I, I think you're right they, that people can come to see things in a very, very different way. And I think that um, if we can do anything, it's to let people know that we're, that we're, you know, that we're human and, and that they're human. But, but there's some kind of force in people's psyches and, and in our world that that wants us to turn away from that or that, that, that causes us to turn away from it. And I think it's, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion. Right. Um, all three, you know, all, all three at once. Yeah, it is, it is the ancient twist, and it's, it's hard to know how to unravel that because it seems like it, we can unravel pockets of it, and yet we turn the corner, and there it is again. Thank you for articulating that reminder. That sad, sad reminder. No yeah. thanks to me. We have a tiger raising his hand. Oh, okay. Uh, thank you for your talk, Asian. Uh, thank you, Jan and Asian, for for bringing up this. <coughs> issue, it's right in front of all of us now as uh, women have had their health care rights just taken away this week, um, which affects all of us. Um, and how to respond... Hey, Tegan. Hold on, Tegan. There's some up. traffic. Okay. Oh, wait. Tell me when. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, just to say again, thank you for your talk, Asian. Thank you for Jan to Jan and Asian for bringing up this dimension of precepts and ethics and 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 how difficult it is. It's not easy to know how to respond. As I was saying this this week, women have had their health care rights stolen, <laughs> um, and I think that affects all of us. And you know, the potential further ramifications will affect many more of us. Um, 
So how to respond, which was part of Jan's question, I do believe that just to talk about it, just to verbalize it, just to bring it to awareness itself changes the situation. And so something I've done regularly is to just talk about these issues, but uh, we're in a very difficult situation in our society now. Um, Eva's over in Sweden. Maybe it's not as as, uh, imminent there, but um, there are things we can do. Uh, Going to demonstrations might be helpful. Uh, talk, call, calling or writing Congress people might be helpful. Voting, definitely, and as much as we still have the right to vote, and that's under attack too, uh, can make a difference. So um, I think in discuss- discussing precepts and ethics, it's um, definitely relevant for us to be Looking at that and also confessing our own feeling of, you know, not knowing what to do. Uh, It's not not easy. But anyway, I appreciate your bringing this into the conversation, Jen. Thank you. I can do a follow-up on that. I unfortunately know some of those people, Jan, who put that sign in the window. Uh, I worked for 30 years on the trading floor at the Board of Trade. Um, So I've seen many sides of this world, including the rapacious capitalistic side. And I know someone in Connecticut who is a deep Buddhist thinker who expanded my knowledge of Anatman and Dependent Arising in a way that I thought was very valuable. Your understanding of anatman? Anatman, non-self. And the idea of dependent arising. And so here's, I'm going to show you what I mean. In America and the United States, we live in a capitalist ideology. Most of us never even think about that. It's something that we're just inculcated with. When we grow up, oh, you've got to go now and get a job. And part of your job when you get to the company, because of the capitalist model, is to maximize profit for the shareholders. The average person isn't an evil or a good person at all. Emptiness teaches us that there's no real inherent self at all. We are a product of the forces that shape us. And one of the products, one of the forces that shapes us unconsciously for many of us is the ideology that we're all living within, which is the capitalist model. So when you have the awful things that people are doing, yes, they're doing awful things, but what ultimately is driving them to do that? And I think awareness, when it's heightened to this level, can see that people have been unconsciously tools of an ideology. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people don't like to talk philosophy. They think it's not have, doesn't have anything to do with the real world, when actually it has everything to do with the real world. Because if you're not conscious of the ide- ideology that is forming who you are, then you're acting in ways that have rewards and punishments within that ideology that, you're, that your behavior is determined by. So all these people going for maximizing profit and stealing you know, getting as much money from other people, they are acting within the rules of success, within the ideology that they found themselves. And I'm not saying that it's not bad behavior, it is. But in a way, when we focus on the people doing bad things, we're only seeing part of the picture. And I think it would be the most helpful thing in our situation as a whole to expand people's awareness into the ideological realm as to what is driving people's behavior. And certainly in the Roe versus Wade decision, uh, I don't know what percentage, but let's just say a half of this country are driven by religious ideological beliefs. You know, that it is an evil thing to do X. And so we are against X. Regardless if it creates suffering for others, they are 
And I'll just end with, you know, the ultimate reason the Buddha taught emptiness was to cut through conceptual fabrications. And ideologies are conceptual fabrications. And when we are created within an ideology and behaving according to that ideology in ways that we don't even normally think about, um, then we are, you know, promoting uh, bad behavior that if we became more aware of that, we could make different choices. Um, and I don't know what the answer is because there's a lot of people that are very, I mean, they're, their belief system is the most entrenched thing about them. So entrenched that they don't even normally think about it. It's something that they assume this is how the world is. You know, there's a creator God who said, don't do this. And therefore I must not do this. And I must prevent others from doing this. Now that's a pretty deep thing to uproot, but ultimately the Buddhist deepest message was focused right at that, which was to, cut through all of our ideas. And when you do that, that opens up the ethical component to see with compassion, there's suffering beings here. You know, when you're, when you're not blinded by your ideology. So, um, and I became a lot more aware of that over the years on the trading floor when I saw the kinds of behaviors that people did on the trading floor. And then I would have lunch with them or I'd meet them somewhere off out of the business context, and they're actually quite wonderful human beings, and they cared about their family, and they helped their friends, and all this stuff. But when they're in this other context, so I guess to finish, I, one could think that one way of thinking of dependent arising is there's no beings, there's only context. As far as the eye can see, and as far as the mind can think, there's literally only context, which shapes the behaviors of persons. And so that's, I'll finish with that. And this was not apologizing for their behavior. This was trying to seek to understand their behavior. That's a really, really excellent example of, um, you know, kind of the extreme of how we are when we're off our cushions and then how we, what we see when we're on our cushions, you know, that, that it is, it is that coming and practicing and sitting with things <laughs> that helps anybody to wake up to what they do and, and thank you so much for illuminating that so so I think you need to start a Zen Center mm -hmm. <laughs> the rapacious capitalist Zen Center yes which will draw in the people who need to be saved <laughs> just a quick follow up on what Brian said um, one of our other 10 major precepts is not to speak of the faults of others. So as Bryant was, was getting at, it's not about particular people who are doing harmful things uh, to blame, you know, to, to, to speak out against particular people is not so much the issue where there's this dependent co-arising of all things to see. So to look at systems of oppression is a way of, seeing this dependent co-arising of situations and then how do we address those systems rather than saying this politician is evil or whatever. It's not about that. It's about how the whole, you know, so that the, and it also is about ideologies as Bryant was saying. So the ideology of, uh, of competition and doing unto others before they do unto us <laughs> and, uh, you know, that kind of taking what you can get as opposed to a Buddhist context, maybe of cooperation, collaboration. We're all, you know, the Sangha is about how we're all in this together. So anyway, thank you, Brian. Then it's coming back. Yeah, nobody else wants to speak. Uh, Michaela. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah, thank you for the talk and um, for all of what I shared. Um, a lot came up for me around um, like not giving, not giving 
what is not freely given. Um, that's a hard one for me. So like not giving things and then um, and then resenting it afterwards. Um, but that's important. But one thing that, that really struck me is um, I just got back from a two-week visit at an eco-village where they are working really hard to cut down their consumption of natural resources and energy and you know like they recycle all their waste their human waste so they're really very radical and it, it really made me realize like how much more i could do about what i'm taking from the environment just by living a middle class lifestyle here in the united states like and it I struggle with knowing how do I not take what's freely given when I'm plugged into a system that, you know, is, is draining resources at a much higher rate than anywhere else in the world. And, and how much freedom and choice do I have around that? And, and what is my responsibility? And how can I meet that responsibility and not taking what's freely given when just, just to kind of get by, I have to take part in systems that are depriving others. Um, and I think for me, it's important to hold that like without, without like too much of a sense of shame, like with, you know, like holding openness and curiosity about how to do that, but also taking it seriously and also realizing that, um, that it's easy to be, to take <laughs> by accident. And this can be hard to find solutions. But, and, and really, it sounds like you, as you try to do it, you immediately come up against your interdependence. And, and you know, to, to fit in with what, what Brian was saying, it's within a system that has been created, you, you only have certain options for exercising that interdependence because you don't have control over some of the other things. Like, you know, where whatever resource comes from or how it impacts those who don't have access to it. But thank you. I think all, all, all of those activities sound like they would really help everyone if, you know, to be, to be just publicized more. There isn't, there isn't, there won't ever be one solution to any of this, but, but the point, I think, really is is practicing in just the way that you're talking about, of of looking at what are the implications for any given action, and what are the you're you're even looking at maybe some of the more far-reaching dimensions of of the action than than we can ordinarily normally see. Uh, Eve has her hand up. I know we're getting close to wrap-up time. Yes. Go ahead, Eve. Eve, you're, you're muted. Um, first, I was going to say when I was listening to your talk, I was thinking about I had a conversation with one of my students this morning about um, about research ethics and you know, the forms we have to fill out for human subjects protection, which frankly, you know, I don't particularly like forms. Um, it makes a lot more sense to me to think about them in terms of of precepts and 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 it does fit. I, I mean, you know, when you're talking about consent for research, you're you're talking about um, what's freely given and thinking about what's freely given and and also, you know, as other people said, being transparent and and there's a basic principle of um, beneficence that that if you're if you're asking people's time um, for participating in, in research, uh, it, it's because it, it's going to benefit a larger group of people, but, and it helps to be explicit about that. Um, anyway, the other thing I wanted to comment on was, was the discussion about um, the 99%. There's um, Daniel Kahn is a musician who's revived the old Jewish socialist songs, and there were some of them that seem very pertinent now that were written at the turn of the 20th century. And then he and some of his friends have also been writing, um, you know, contemporary um, new songs. And there's one called Nine and Nine Sig, which is the 99. 
um, that's about the 99%. It wasn't Daniel Connor. It was one of his friends who, who wrote the lyrics. But the verse in there that I like the most is, um, there's two lines, first in Yiddish, nine and nine sig is a chaverschaft, a chaver is friend. So it's 99% is a community of friends. Ein and ein sig, uh is a chazerschaft, chazer is a pig. You know, but the idea of a pig is greedy and eating more than than it needs to. So um, the one percent is a um, a community of pigs, and then it goes into English and says ninety nine is a community, and one percent is an f unity. Said somewhat less politely, but um, yeah, and and um, I think even. Um, you know, even voicing that as Jan did, um, you know, voicing that larger context, thinking about how we feed into it and how we can undermine it. Um, and it, it also shows the connection between the the precepts that um, that we've been talking about and, um, you know, and the idea of dependent arising, that we're all part of this this larger whole, but, um, and, and and trying to figure out you know, both how we respond to it and how we can affect it. Thank you. you I also, even, if, even if it's right by writing protest music, which I wish people would do more of. Anyway. Yes. 